0: Okay, we're going to talk about the temple today, and what you're going to notice, and I'll even say a little bit more about this next week, is that a lot of these themes have overlap. And I'm really excited about this particular lesson because I think that when we read our Old Testament, that understanding the temple and the clean and unclean laws of the Old Testament is where we all kind of wonder, what, what is this about? What is this all about, right? I mean, many of us may know if we've been in church a long time how very small sections of the Old Testament law point forward to Christ or to the new covenant. But really, we don't have an understanding, I think at large, of what God was trying to picture there. And so I think as we survey this idea of temple, of the sanctuary in the word of God, and how this theme evolves and changes over time, I think you're gonna be better equipped to understand some things about the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament temple. I think you're gonna be better equipped to understand some things about what God was doing through the land of Israel. And we'll talk about that in more detail in a separate lesson. I think you'll be better equipped to understand the ministry of Christ. I think you'll have a better appreciation for the local church and the attachment and the value that God places on the local church. Now, I don't think this is on your handout, but there are two key verses that I think you need to read with me and study with me for just a moment to better understand what God was doing through the temple, the tabernacle, and other sanctuaries in the Old Testament, okay? The first one I want you to see is Leviticus 26. This is at the end of the book of Leviticus. I believe 26 is the last chapter. And the book of Leviticus is really all about temple worship. It's about the priests, it's about the sacrifices. It's about the Day of Atonement. It's about the laws that would allow someone to enter into the tabernacle court or not enter it. And so really this verse is the capstone of the book of Leviticus explaining what the purpose of the tabernacle was. And I want you to notice God's choice wording here in Leviticus 26. Notice this, that God says, I will set my tabernacle, I'm gonna use a different color, Among you. What is he saying there? Again, you can take notes on this separately, but it's saying that the tabernacle was the means of God coming to dwell with his people. My tabernacle will become among you and my soul shall not abhor you. What does that mean? Meaning that the tabernacle was the place where God's wrath would be appeased that rather than abhorring a sinful people, because that's what sinful people deserve. They deserve God's wrath and his his setting himself against them. The tabernacle would solve that problem. Now look at the next phrase. And I will walk among you. Now what does that remind you of in the book of Genesis? The Garden of Eden. What is the tabernacle doing? It's God restoring the fellowship that he had with his people in the garden. Somehow through the tabernacle, it was a means of God restoring his fellowship. And then he says, and you can even write this down, that this phrase is a covenant formula, that if you see this in the Old Testament, it's God calling back to a covenant. I will be your God and you shall be my people. So so this tabernacle had something to do with covenant. So here's what Leviticus is teaching us, that the tabernacle is a means of God dwelling with us, appeasing God's wrath, God restoring fellowship that was lost in the garden, and, and, and maintaining a covenant relationship. The Psalms often reflect in a poetic way on the things that the historical books of the Old Testament are trying to communicate. And Psalm 16:11 reflects on the goal of the tabernacle and the temple. We know this because there's these two phrases here that are very closely associated with the tabernacle, the presence of God. Remember, we just talked about God was setting his tabernacle among them, and then thy right hand." That is, that is talking about God's throne. And what we'll, we could go in a lot more detail, that the Holy of Holies was seen as the throne room of God. So Psalm 16:11 is reflecting on this tabernacle sanctuary and notice what the psalmist reflects on poetically that God is doing for his people through the sanctuary. What does he say? That the tabernacle, the sanctuary was the path of life. What is he saying by that? He's saying that the tabernacle, the temple of God was the path to true life with God on this earth. That through the temple, God would bring his people life. And not only would he bring them life, he would bring them joy. Now when you and I as new covenant believers, we think about the Old Testament, we think it's a bunch of people routinely worshiping and going through the drudgery and the motions to bring every sacrifice just as God told it. But that is absolutely not what it was and what it was supposed to be. The tabernacle was supposed to be a means of bringing joy and pleasure to God's people. And there's specific ways that this was reflected, even the laws for the priests. I was just reading Leviticus this week, Leviticus 21 or something like that. And it was, God is laying out that the priests, specifically the high priest, were not allowed to mourn the death of a close loved one. They weren't, the high priest wasn't allowed to leave to go bury his loved one, because burying a dead person would make you unclean. And number two, the priest wasn't allowed to openly mourn by shaving his hair. Why? Because in the presence of God was supposed to be a picture, not of mourning, but of joy. And then, of course, at thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So what I want us to do, and hopefully we'll get through it all, I want us to survey how this theme of temple Tabernacle evolves throughout the scripture, and we're going to have to work quickly, okay? Here's the first sanctuary. It's creation, Eden, and the garden. And what you're going to notice in the Old Testament, there's, this, there's always these three levels. So in the first one, the first tabernacle, the first sanctuary that God makes for his people to worship and dwell with him and walk with him is creation, Eden, and the garden, Now, you and I may not consider the whole world to be God's temple, because when we think temple, we think small building, right? But the Psalms and other places in Scripture try to remind us that the created world was supposed to be and is the great temple of God. Psalm 78, verse 69 reflects on this. So we know it's talking about the sanctuary, right? Because it says that. But look, he says he has built his sanctuary like the high palaces. Now, what do you think the high palaces are? What do you think he's, he's thinking about there? The heavens. Literally, you'll notice in your King James Bible, it's italic, so it literally just says the high. It's the heavens. So what is he saying here? He's saying that his sanctuary, the temple, is built like the real sanctuary in the heavens. And then he notice notice the parallelism here between earth and sanctuary. He built his sanctuary like the heavens. He built his sanctuary like the earth, which he established forever. And we see so many parallels between God's creative act in Genesis 1 to his building of the tabernacle in Exodus. This is interesting. I'm just gonna name these off. We don't have time to study this. When God creates the world, you remember this in our Genesis 1 sermon, what phrase punctuates that account seven different times that is God's means of creating the world? It's three words, and God said, right? If you read Exodus 25 through 31, the creation of the tabernacle, God giving his instructions to Moses, is structured around seven times where it says, and the Lord said to Moses. And so all the instructions for the tabernacle are also given in seven installments with the Lord said. In in addition to this, and we don't have time to study this, at the very end of the completion of the tabernacle, there's a lot of phrases that directly mirror what God says in Genesis 1.31 through 2.3. Remember that sermon about God resting? It says God finished his work, he blessed his work, and he rested. Well, at the end of Exodus, it says that Moses finished the work, God blessed the work, and Moses observed the Sabbath. Interesting. We talked about this, so I won't go into it, but the garden also has striking parallels to the Holy of Holies. And then we also know at the end of Genesis that God sets a cherubim at the east edge of the garden, guarding it. Well, we also know at the east entrance of the Holy of Holies, there was a veil, a curtain, and what was printed on that curtain? Cherubim on the east side. There's also later parallels between the garden and the future sanctuary, the new heavens and the new earth, with the river of life, the gold, and the tree of life. We know in Genesis 3, 8, like we talked about, that it was in the garden sanctuary that God walked among his people like he intended to in the book of Leviticus through the tabernacle. So here's the truth. The first sanctuary serves as a preview of the next sanctuary, which will be the tabernacle. But it also serves as a preview of the last sanctuary, the last temple, which is the new creation, okay? What's the next sanctuary? Here it is. And I think this is the most misunderstood one. It's the camp of Israel. So we're working inside. Camp of Israel, tabernacle, holy of holies, okay? Camp of Israel, tabernacle, holy of holies. In order to understand best what is going on through the tabernacle, you have to understand that God has a very specific geographic layout, okay? And that's shown in this picture, which also is blocked by wording because I didn't make my slideshow good. But what you notice, if you read the first chapter of the book of Numbers and other places in Leviticus and Exodus, that God's design for the camp of Israel, the tabernacle, and the Holy of Holies was a big square in the innermost part of the square was the tabernacle. And of course, in the innermost part of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. And then as a buffer zone outside of the tabernacle were the Levites. They were supposed to camp around the tabernacle. They were a sort of buffer zone of holiness. And then outside of the Levite camp was all of the other 12 tribes camped around them. Okay? And then outside of the camp of Israel is what you could consider to be the realm of the dead. Now, understand this. This will help you really understand your Old Testament a lot better. What we see in the laws of the Old Testament is that God is giving a very illustrative picture here of a graded holiness, okay? So it's interesting that those who would be dead or would be like unto dead, they could not dwell within the camp. Right? Because they were in the realm of the dead. So they were cast out of the camp. Can you think of a famous, diseased person that has to stay outside of the camp of Israel? Lepers, right? Now here's what's interesting. In order to enter closer in towards God's holiness, there is ceremonial things that have to happen. The only time anointing and washing happens in the book of Leviticus is twice once in Leviticus 8 and 2nd and I think Leviticus 14. Those who would be ordained as priests, they could then move from this area into the court of the tabernacle, the holy place. And in order for them to be able to have that access, they first had to go through an anointing ceremony that included oil on their heads, ritual washing and bathing, and blood applied to their ear, their thumb, and their toe to symbolize their whole body. The Only time that ceremony is mirrored is, of all people, on the lepers. Now, why are the lepers receiving a priestly anointment? Because in order for them to move from the outside realm of the dead into the camp of Israel and be resurrected back to life after their disease is confirmed to be gone, they had to receive atonement and anointing and washing which really is an early picture of God washing and cleansing his people with his blood to resurrect them from the realm of the dead into the realm of life. To bring them closer to him, God had to first deal with their sins, deal with their uncleanness, and anoint them as priests. So, so what we're seeing in the tabernacle and the, the, the camp of Israel and the Holy of Holies is this graded holiness. And so if you want to understand, what you have to understand is the Holy of Holies is the holiest place, the holy place, which was not in the court of the tabernacle, but within the actual tabernacle tent, was a the next holiest place. Only certain priests could go there. And then the court of the tabernacle was only for Jews. And then the camp of Israel, and then of course, we also know that actually outside the camp of Israel was the mixed multitude. They were non-Jews. And so it's this idea of graded holiness. So what is the function of the tabernacle in the later temple? This will help you understand it a little bit better. Well, first of all, in my very unclear slide here, number one, it's the place of atonement and the forgiveness of sins by God's mercy. Because it'd be in that holy of holies, that atonement would be made For all of the nation. We talked about that before. And then outside the tabernacle was where most people offered most of their offerings, and the blood was applied to the altar. So that's what the temple or the tabernacle symbolized. It was a place of atonement. Number two, it is where God dwells. Ah. Where God dwells with mankind. And where he desires to meet with him, to walk with him. And so when you read in Exodus that Moses is going into the tent of meeting, God is meeting with Moses. And really the tabernacle, just to add some more detail to this, is just like a replica of what was going on on Sinai, Mount Sinai, where God gave the commandments because the cloud came down on Sinai. And when they built the tabernacle, what happens? The cloud comes down. So God is meeting with his people just like he did on Sinai, just like he did with Adam in the garden. He is meeting with them and walking with them. And then it's also the embodiment of life and joy, right? We talked about that. It's the embodiment of life and joy. That's why there's these these laws for the priests that they're not allowed to mourn in the temple because God is trying to let them be a picture of the joy that is in the presence of God. And it represents holiness and separation from the rest of the world that is affected by sin and the curse. Another thing that might help you understand some of these clean and unclean laws. if you study them in detail, all of those laws about clean and unclean are actually a picture of the curse. All those laws, if you study Genesis 3, where the curse is given, they have to do with reproduction. what happens to the curse? The curse involves reproduction. God brings suffering to childbearing. A lot of those laws have to do with food, specifically is mentioned often the creeping things, which borrows language from what when God curses the serpent. A lot of those laws have to do with death and disease, which are also a result of the curse. And so what God is doing through these clean and unclean laws is he's trying to give his people a living representation of what it means to have true life with him. And that's why there has to be such a clear picture because it would ruin the illustration, not just of the earthly life God gives to his people, but the heavenly life that he gives to them, the resurrection life that he gives to them, and how God is trying to save his people from the effects of sin, the curse. Then next in the story of the Bible, we have the land of Israel, as the broader sanctuary, the temple, and the holy of holies. I won't spend as much time on this because it repeats a lot from the tabernacle, and we're gonna spend more time on the land of Israel in a future lesson. But we know, number one, that scripture gives us plenty of reasons to think of the land of Israel as a sanctuary of God. Look back at Genesis 12 and notice that Genesis 12, where God calls Moses to the land, has so many callbacks to God's creation. So we see a parallelism here. There's several ways that it connects. God says, bless, I'll bless thee, I'll make thy name great, thou shalt be a blessing. I'll bless him that curse thee, I'll curse him that curseth thee, and thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed, which is multiplication, right? All the families, And then also, make thy name great is talking about multiplication. Well, we see all these things in the Genesis account, don't we? God blesses his creation, God curses the sins of Adam and Eve, and God wants his creation to multiply and fill what? The earth. So, so God is just saying, hey, what I was trying to do in creation, I'm now trying to do through you, Abraham. I'm trying to make the land of Israel, this place where I'm going to bring you, a broader sanctuary. And then I want you to notice Exodus 15, 17. It also gives us a picture of the land of Israel as a sanctuary. He says, thou shalt bring them in and plant, this is a song of Moses, the mountain of of thine inheritance. Well, that, that, that seems to be pointing us back to Abraham's inheritance, doesn't it? So, so Moses is saying, God, you're gonna bring us and plant us in the mountain of your inheritance, right? In the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in. So what's the place God would dwell in? The mount of the inheritance, which is what? It's Israel. In the what? Sanctuary. So the the inheritance, the place, and the sanctuary are all paralleled here, Lord, which thy hands have established. So Israel is thought of as the broader sanctuary, just like creation was supposed to be the broader sanctuary of God, and just like the tab or the camp of Israel was supposed to be God's broader sanctuary where he'd be worshipped by his people. And then we see the temple that is later built after they inherit the land and God gives them rest from all of their enemies. That's said twice in the days of David and the days of Solomon, actually three times, in the days of Joshua, David and Solomon, it says that they had rest from all of their enemies. So they receive the full portion of the land and then they build a temple within that land. And we know that the temple is the replacement of the tabernacle, right? A couple reasons we know that. First Kings six, verses 37 through 38, shows us that it took Solomon how long to build the temple? Seven years. And then the narrative of building the temple, we see all the same furniture and designs as the tabernacle. It has a holy of holies. And then when that first temple is built, what comes down out of the sky and fills it? The cloud of glory, which is the same thing that happens with Sinai and the tabernacle, right? So here we see God's new sanctuary is this temple. Now, I don't have time, but I wish I did, to show you how I often do in these lessons, how in the prophets, and even the historical books, that God is already pointing to a different temple. I mean, the temple had just been built, and God's pointing to another one. You could write down a reference and read it later, but you could read Haggai 2.7, which gives us the idea that God was going to replace the temple with a person, God says that I'll fill this latter house with more glory than the first house. What's he talking about? He's talking about the temple. So, and they had just built a temple and no glory cloud came down that I see recorded in scripture. I could be wrong about that, but I haven't seen it yet. God says, but this latter house, and they think he's talking about the little temple they built. But he's talking about the desire of nations as the latter house. And that will have more glory than the original temple. And that desire of nations is none other than, than Christ, who is the greater temple. Now we see in Jesus' earthly ministry, I was just reading this in the book of Mark last night, that leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus spends a lot of time in Jerusalem. All the gospels kind of have the same thing recorded other than John. And in a lot of Jesus' speeches and parables and acts, he is cursing curse words, but uttering a curse from God on the people of Israel and the temple. You could write down Mark eleven fourteen through 29, and you could read this. But Jesus curses a fig tree, which represents Israel, that bears no fruit. Jesus purges the temple, remember that? And after he purges the temple, Mark records a messianic prophecy that comes from Jeremiah 7. And then Jesus says that he has the authority to cleanse the temple because he's the son of man. And so Jesus in his own ministry is saying, God is not dwelling here anymore. This place has lost its purpose and its glory. And then on top of that, Jesus starts saying that his body is the temple. Early on in John chapter number 2, verse 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Well, they all thought he was talking about the building, but Jesus is talking about his body and he calls his own body the temple of God. The end of Mark also says that the disciples, as they're walking out of the temple courts, are like, wow, this is a really nice building. And Jesus says, you watch, the day will come where not a single stone is left on top of the other. God's gonna wipe this out. And then historically, we see that God did wipe out the temple. There is no temple in Israel because in AD 70, 70 years after uh, the year of Christ, that the temple was fully destroyed. Jerusalem was ransacked by the Roman government. It was completely leveled, never to be built again. We know this, that in John, that it seems to give us tabernacle language when it says that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's tabernacle language. Colossians 2.9 tells us that in Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Christ himself is the new temple. Friend, there is no temple building that's going to be rebuilt like Solomon's temple. Christ is that temple, and he's a whole lot better one than even that building used to be. Because Christ cannot be defiled. The earthly temple could. So what do we learn by Christ being the new temple? We learn this, that God's presence among mankind is no longer in a building, it's in a person. What was the temple? It was God dwelling among his people. It was God walking among his people. It was God atoning for his people. It was God bringing joy to his people. And all of those things happen in Christ. He is the new temple. And this is most gloriously displayed when Matthew and I think all the gospel writers portray that the moment that Jesus gives up the ghost what happens? The temple destruction begins. Matthew 27, it says, behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. By the way, when we see earthquakes in the Old Testament, it's typically when God dwells among his people like he did at Sinai. But this veil was the separation between the throne room of God and fallen mankind. And when Christ finishes his sacrifice on the cross, God from heaven visibly displays that he's done with the earthly temple because he has made a temple in the body of his son, Jesus Christ. And then we know that God will be with his people forever through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That though Christ has left, God still walks among us and still dwells with his people, not through a building, but through the person of the Holy Spirit. And it's because of this that we can also say that God's people are the temple of God. As a collective group in the church or as a singular group, in every Holy Spirit-filled believer. Why? Because God has dwelt among us through the Holy Spirit that indwells you if you are a Christian. And we see this so much displayed in the church as the temple of God. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. I want you to open your Bibles. It will be on the screen. 1 Corinthians 3. We'll get here in just a few weeks in our 1 Corinthians series. Are we turning there? Are y'all ignoring me? Look at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Paul equates the church to the temple. He says, know ye not, these are plural yous, know ye not that ye, you all, are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. So 1 Corinthians 3, 16, here's your next blank makes it clear that the church is the temple of God because his spirit dwells in the plurality of believers who make up the church. Think of all the ways we can apply this. If God's temple is this church, this one, we are his temple. Every other church that believes the gospel is indwelt by spirit believing people is the temple of God. What does that mean about our gatherings? It means a lot of things. Paul applies this concept in a couple different ways in his letters to Corinth. He applies it this way, that as the temple, the church of God should have no association with idols or a false gospel. 2 Corinthians 6 is a famous passage that we all heard as teenagers at youth rallies that t- where they told us not to marry unbelievers. That is true, It may be an application of this passage, but it's not actually what this passage is about in 2 Corinthians 6, right? The separating light from darkness. This is about the church separating from false teaching. And God says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, "'Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness?' Verse 16 says, "'In what agreement hath the temple of God with idols?' For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. He's quoting Leviticus. I will walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul is saying that the living, breathing, local New Testament church is the new temple of God. That the same way he would walk among his people through the tabernacle, he intends to walk among his people through the church, the gathered people of God. 1 Corinthians 3 applies this concept as well by saying that division in the church is as serious of an offense as temple destruction or defilement. Look back at 1 Corinthians 3. <clears throat> he says, "Know you not that the Spirit of God, you are the temple of God, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now listen to this, he begins talking about the division of the church and he says this, therefore let no man glory in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and ye are Christ and Christ is God. Here's what Paul is saying, that as this church was separating over personalities that they followed, which begins to happen in chapter one, we'll see that tonight, that he says that if you separate and you divide the church, whether it's over issues or whether it's over people, you are destroying the temple of God. Now, you and I know that it's a serious thing to defile the temple of God. If the high priest walked into the Holy of Holies defiled, what happened? What happened? He dropped dead. And is it any wonder that the, the, the gathered church as they were fellowshipping with God at the Lord's table and they were defiling that gathering because they were fellowshipping with idols by eating meat in the temple offered to idols, is it any wonder that as they gathered, defiling the new temple of God, that Paul says, because there's sins in communion, that some of you are sick and even sleep. He says, some of y'all, because you defile the temple have dropped dead. I'm just saying that what this temple theology gives us is it attaches a certain seriousness to what goes on in this church. It doesn't matter what size it is. It doesn't matter what your opinion is, that if there is division in the church, it is defiling the temple of the living God. And that's what Paul makes application of it. Here's the second or the fourth application is the church is given authority to declare God's forgiveness of sinners. You'll see this in John 20. One, one or two of you made a face when I said that. Just quoting Jesus, okay? What did Jesus say after they received the Holy Ghost? When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive ye the Holy Ghost. And what does he say after that? Whosoever sins, ye. Who's the ye? Who's the ye? The church, the apostles. The apostles. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. Whosoever sins you retain, meaning that you don't say they're forgiven, they are retained. I thought there was another verse there. What is he saying? And this is echoed in Matthew. I I think I have the, the verses on there. Matthew 18, verses 17 through 20. Now think about this. Look up here and think, okay? In the old temple... Who declared people's sins to be atoned and forgiven? The priest. Did the priest declare their sins forgiven on his own authority? Was he pretending he was God by forgiving their sins, saying their sins were forgiven? He wasn't forgiving them. He was saying they were forgiven. No. But he was the earthly representative of God to say this person's sins have been forgiven. And what Jesus is saying is that this authority has been transferred to the church. The church does not have its own, the church doesn't forgive people's sins or retain them. Those sins are against the Lord, right? But this has very important ramifications for church membership. And that's the context in which it shows up in Matthew 18, 17 through 20. And this this affects our theology of the church a little bit. And we gotta be very clear on this. That when a church is baptizing, or allowing somebody to join, they are with earthly authority given to them by God, saying this person's sins, we believe their sins are forgiven by Christ because they have demonstrated a profession in Christ and they have demonstrated lordship to Christ by following him in baptism and with a life of obedience. So what we don't often recognize, and I've said this in our, in our growth step series, is that church membership is a, de- a earthly declaration of God's heavenly forgiveness. Church membership is us saying that we believe these people are the people of God. When you church vote and and receive people to membership, you're saying, we believe these are people of God. And the only reason to vote against it is not because they don't dress like you want to or maybe because they disagree on a tiny little piece of doctrine that you wish they agreed with you on. The only reason to disagree and, and to not vote someone into church membership is if you don't think they're an actual believer, which is... What makes church discipline make a whole lot more sense because some churches, they practice church discipline as like a really serious scolding that should make people repent of their sins. That's not what church discipline is. Church discipline, when you remove someone off your your membership list, is saying that as a church, because of their lifestyle, we we can't validate that this person's a Christian because there's no earthly fellowship of Christ. We can't validate that. Because they, they don't attend church at all. I mean, I don't know a, a bloodbought Christian that God says, yeah, you could just not come to church. That's a fruit of the Spirit, right? Just totally miss God's house and never care to come back, right? That's what church discipline is. It's just saying, hey, we don't, we don't have any earthly reason. God knows, but we don't have any earthly reason to validate this person's profession of faith. And what, what churches have to recognize, our church particularly, is that there is a, a matter of seriousness attached to church discipline membership that has all, everything to do with someone's conversion. It is our earthly authority given to us by our Savior because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the plurality of believers. That's why Matthew 18 does not invest that authority in one man or two men. He says that if somebody continues to live in sin when multiple people have confronted them, bring it to the church because it's the church that has authority to declare whether or not this person is in the kingdom of God. Two more. The individual Christian is also a temple. It's the temple of the Holy Ghost. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 16. When he's speaking to them as individual believers who were polluting themselves by illicit sexual acts. In First Corinthians 6, 16, Paul says this. What, know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you. And then he applies this idea of temple to tell us that our body is not our property. What does he say? Which you have of God, and ye are not your own. You're bought with a price, therefore glorify your God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. What we have to recognize as Christians is that God cares how we treat our bodies. This is a good scriptural principle to deal with maybe somebody who's, who's tempted to self-harm and cut themselves. I think this is a good principle for you and me to be very careful how we treat our bodies. See, I think Christians sometimes can have an over-spiritualized theology of the body where it's like, oh, our body's just a shell. No, 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 no. That's like saying the temple is just a shell. Well, your body is the temple of God. And so the way you treat your body, whether it's by, you know, eating super unhealthy and just trashing your body, not following how the doctor said you should take care of your body and just trashing your body's health, participating in certain addictions that that really, really hurt your body or doing other things, anorexia, bulimia, those things, those are defiling and destroying the temple of God. God cares how his people treat their bodies. And here's the last sanctuary. It's the new creation, And we'll talk more about this because this is really what the land of Israel is pointing to, is the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth. There's so many correspondences between the new creation and the old creation. Genesis 1-2 through says that the old creation was a clean realm of life. And Revelation 21 and 22 depict a clean realm of life. There was no death in God's cosmic temple prior to sin in Genesis 3, and there will be no death after the first heaven and the earth passes away and the sea is no more in Revelation 21. There were no transgressors or sinners in Genesis 1 through 2, and there will be no sinners or transgressors in the new Jerusalem. And as Adam was God's son, granted dominion over God's realm as his vice king, so God's temple will be served by a royal priesthood Revelation one seven says this, he that overcometh shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. This morning, let's remember that as we gather as the assembled church, God's presence is here. God's presence is here. What we do is, as the gathered church, matters. It is not flippant. It doesn't mean we have to be somber. In God's presence, there's fullness of joy. But it's not flippant. So let us remember that as we assemble as the gathered church this morning and sing praises to God and hear his word.